welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Um, a few years ago, I uh, encountered a very intriguing figure at uh, one of the psychedelic conferences I uh, go to. It's uh, our guest today, uh, Kilindi Aya. And uh, there were a number of interesting things about his presentation. One was uh, the f- extremity with which he had taken up the heroic dose uh, sort of protocol best known from Terence McKenna. Terence talked about how, you know, you can take mushrooms, other things, and different compounds, but that the real dynamite, the real journey into your own mind, the real Magellan of hyperspace would take five grams in silent darkness. Which, you know, is a, it's a strong experience. You're definitely uh, in another domain. And then there's this fellow, Kalindi, talking about a whole other order of heroic dose. In fact, I would like to say it, these are super heroic doses. <laughs> and uh, he was talking about 30 grams, 35 grams, 40 grams, which was a shocker. And as somebody who came or comes to, to some degree to the psychedelic conversation from a harm reduction point of view, I, I found this a little bit shocking and even a little dismaying, perhaps. And so initially I was a little like, wow, what is this guy going on about? And yet, yeah, these are trippy stories, everything, but that's a, that's a dangerous amount. But the more I listened to him and, you know, he, he, he's very careful to uh, say, you know, this isn't for everyone. The more I recognized that he was uh, carrying forward that in his own way, that McKenna idea of a heroic dose, that is a dose you're not taking to heal your traumas. You're not taking to, uh, you know, work out your personality issues. You're not taking even to, uh, you know, commune with the beauties of nature, Uh, but that you're going to see how far you can go out of curiosity, out of conviction, out of a sort of, uh, and out of a, a need for courage to go into these intense climbs. And so, uh, I think that Kalindi's performing a really important role right now um, as psychedelic, uh, as the psychedelic conversation has such an emphasis on medicine, on practical real-world applications, on questions of scheduling, on uh, proper protocols, on new uh, companies coming in and and synthesizing psilocybin and offering them for treatment of depression and PTSD and other things that we sometimes forget about the more metaphysical, mystical, and frankly, just super weird dimensions of psychedelic experience, uh, things that I think used to be a more central part of the conversation and that we are going to lose a lot to, uh, to lose a hold of. So that's one aspect uh, of Kalindi's presentations that were remarkable. Another one is simply that he's a black American man, and we don't see a lot of them in psychedelic conferences, either uh, in the, uh, behind the podiums or in the audiences. You know, there's exceptions for sure. Uh, but to me, this is not only, you know, an important thing to open up, 
to recognize that everybody has, uh, you know, a, a way into the psychedelic story, but also intrigued me because of the perspectives, the perspectives would be different. That talking to Clindy, I'm hoping, will illuminate some aspects uh, of the contemporary psychedelic moment that are otherwise lost or even uh, repressed or sh- shuttered down in some of the typical ways that we see in uh, a society whose racism uh, invades even groovy sectors um, of the culture. People who are who very meaningfully want to do better, know more, broaden their outlooks, get outside a typical Western w- worldview. Uh, there's still some blocks. There's still some unspoken and unrecognized uh, issues going on there. So for for these and other reasons, I was really happy when uh, Kalindi agreed to be on uh, Expanding Minds. So with no further ado, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm uh, honored anytime I get a chance to speak to the audience out there in audience land and get a chance to share some of the things that I um get a chance to talk about from time to time when I go to uh, different conferences or deal with podcasts or different talks that I have uh, around uh, around the world. Um, Well, first and foremost, let's clear clear a few things up. My name is Kalindi Iyi. It's pronounced Iyi. Sorry, uh, sir. No, no problem. You do better than most. Uh, (laughs) um, And, uh, you know, uh, that's just to clear that away. And also the, the second part, um, as far as Black American, I'm an uh, African, uh, unapologetically uh, African, and I, uh, I hold that banner proudly. So without further ado, since we've cleared those two things up, I guess we can get started. Dealing with basically, um, I mean, as far as Terrence McKenna is concerned, of course, he's a legend and a person who... Uh, all of us uh, love to listen to and get a chance to hear his wisdom and things like that. But what most people don't know is that I'm a contemporary with Terrence McKenna. I'm not uh, jolly come lately. Um, I may be uh, uh, recent to the conferences as far as a speaker is concerned, but as far as the psychedelic uh, world, I've been in it for, you know, 46 years, uh, 47 years going on 50 years as far as dealing with mushrooms and back more than 50 years with uh with lsd so i'm i'm not just a johnny come lately not that any of us are experts in this because there are no experts you know we're all searching and trying to find out what these things are all about so um you know i i think when we're talking about high doses the uh, the African community living in, in America uh, has been doing this for a long time. We have uh, psychedelic music with the Parliament Funkadelics, uh, with uh, the uh, different groups that we had, Earth, Wind, and Fire, you know, we had uh, Sun Ra, you know, um, Sly and the Family Stone, on and on and on, you know, uh, dealing with psychedelic music and the psychedelic uh, I guess you say underground. Um, it hasn't reemerged to a great extent as far as in the uh, new reemergence of the psychedelic community. But 
we getting ready to bust up into breaking convention this year in mass. So be looking for a different type of presence when we come through this uh, this August in Greenwich in the UK. So um, and you'll be hearing some of the speakers. Uh, hopefully we aren't regulated to the third floor basement with no nobody uh, videoing the uh, actual speakers and things like that. And, you know, we'll probably have a, a good time. Well, uh, I, I certainly look forward to it if I, if I can make it to the, uh, to the event. Still not sure, given my, uh, given my schedule, but it, it, sounds, it sounds great. Well, you, you brought up a lot of different things there, and I, I, I'm, I'm kind of pulled in different directions. But I think I'd, I, I would want to go and talk a little bit about, about your history, because part of what interests me is, is hearing that long story. And, you know, one of the things that comes through when you speak and you talk about you know high dose experience, and you talk about really far out um, zones. Is there's a there's a kind of a steadiness and so even dare I say sobriety to the way that you talk about these things that takes it far out of the realm of the kind of whoa this is so weird and you know the kind of exuberance of the new convert. Instead, you you sound like a, a you know a seasoned veteran and i use that word uh in, intentionally in terms of the the fa- that at least as far as my impression is that part of your approach to particularly high dose experiences has to do with a kind of martial orientation you you uh come out of a, a long study of martial arts both uh <clears throat> more familiar asian practices and then a kind of a set of African martial practices that you brought together by studying with different teachers. And I'd I'd like to hear more about that uh, as well. And that this all has to do with kind of your your personal personal history. So in a way, I kind of almost rather start with the with the with the martial arts a little bit and to talk about um, how that started to become, you know, when that started to become a really significant part of your life and how you started to research, uh, particularly African fighting schools, which are not as well known, uh, and, and kind of putting together your own uh, mix of uh, these fighting styles, which, you know, and then maybe talk about how that relates to, to some of your early psychedelic work. But I'd just like to hear something about your, your unique martial arts uh, experience. Well, I mean, I started um, out actually boxing with my father, who was a professional fighter, and going on through wrestling in uh, in my younger days and things like that. And of course, when uh, martial arts uh, became something that was available to be able to see, I was basically at the uh, state fairgrounds at the state fair, and they were giving a martial arts demonstration, and I was fascinated by it, and uh, took it on as my vocation for life at that uh, at that period, and uh, studying with the various teachers around you know my area and things like that, and mainly um, uh, a older uh, older brother who stayed across the street from me who was teaching me martial arts and then you know trying to study here and there because my father who was a boxer didn't have much confidence in martial arts he said you hit a man with your fist you don't kick him with your foot so um studying and learning and things like that i ultimately you know during the the late 60s you know with the black power movement and black is beautiful and uh, into African consciousness, I, I said there, well, there must be 
African martial arts too, if they have martial arts in Italy and Spain and Portugal and France and uh, Okinawa and the Indonesian archipelago or the Philippines and Australia and every place else, Africa must have martial arts also. So um, my study uh, led me to at first everyone who was saying anything and everything about uh, uh, martial arts in general, then Africans in specific. And so I harassed people who were coming in the country to go to uh, the different colleges uh, from the African continent, ultimately traveling to Africa uh, many, 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 many times myself uh, to study. But one thing that I found out is that uh, Africa was already heavily into hallucinogenics. And I think even the literature up until very recently, you know, the last 20, 15, 20 years said that Africa was sparse in hallucinogenic compounds. Well, they said Africa was sparse in hallucinogenic compounds because no one ever went to Africa to ask the Africans or see if there was anything there. They basically um, dealt with, you know, South America and, and things like this rather than Africa because Africa was a bit scary. The climate was volatile at the time, dealing with... Uh, a colonization and uh, throwing off the shackles of imperialism and things like that, Africa was kind of dangerous to go to. And then it was kind of scary in general going into um, those areas. So uh, nobody really went to seek these things. And I went to seek because they had at the time um, what they would call spiritual medicines. Um, and that was just the English translation. They would, um, you know, of course, have different names in the different languages, but uh, they were deemed in English spiritual medicines. And when I would get the, the medicines, you know, um, cuts with different powders and things that would go inside of the cuts, um, things that you would drink, the things were salves that you put into the skin, uh, inhalants and things like that, um, that would give you a uh, different levels of the psychedelic, hallucinogenic, entheogenic experience. What I would, uh, what I would do um, later on, uh, reading any and everything, of course, dealing with uh, spiritualism, ancient culture, and things like that. Um, uh, I came across uh, Carlos Castaneda and uh, the Yaqui way of knowledge, and. So what I did was, um, in encountering these books, I looked at the little smoke and mushroom and datura and these type of things to see if I could find some. A friend of mine who lived actually on the next street, um, he was uh, maybe a couple of years old and that was. So when I was in high school, he went to uh, Oaxaca to where uh, Maria Sabina lived and he, had the experience of the food of the gods and he brought mushrooms back with him. So uh, we messing around with the mushrooms one day, uh, I had a chance to take it and it gave me the same type of feeling and same type of mindset uh, that I was getting from the African spiritual medicines. So then I set off to find 
what were the ingredients of these medicines, but they were many times held secret and different uh, priests or uh, spiritual people in the area, they weren't really keen on giving up their formulas. But the more and more taking mushrooms and then taking mushrooms, the second time that I took them at high dose, um, I don't actually know what dose it was, but um, he went back to Oaxaca, he sent mushrooms back to me and I ate the whole bag. And that was the start of my uh, fullness in the entheogenic journey. And um, I've basically been on that trip since that time. And I've always taken it seriously and with respect. So I didn't start out in a club, you know, dancing and uh, a little dose to synergize the lights and music and things like that. I started out with a full entheogenic dose. So I took the journey seriously. And those that for decades I tried to share it with, uh, you know, just thought, oh, that's a, a white hippie thing. You don't want to be messing with that. You burn your brain out, your brain, your brain on drugs, the egg thing. So um, that's really where my martial arts and uh, mushroom merged. And really, um, when we look back again at Africa, you know, just in South Africa, you have 300 different entheogens alone, deliriance, dream herbs, hallucinogenics, um, so many different types of uh, spiritual medicines or entheogens that, you know, it pales any place else that I've traveled and looked at the different things. And that's just in South Africa alone. And then you have the oldest records of hallucinogenic use on the African continent in South Africa and accessible the records of the oldest use in uh, Algeria in the Sahara at a place called Tessili Plateau. And at Tessili Plateau, that was the precursor to ancient Egypt um, just after the Younger Dryas impact uh, or the Clovis impact that divided the old world from the ancient world. Yeah. Ancient world, everything on this side of the 12,800 impact and, you know, uh, down to this uh, day that we're speaking in now. So I, I want to ask you one thing about a comment you made just a, a little while ago is... Um, you talked about how some of the people in your community would respond to you like, oh, that's a white hippie thing. Oh, you're going to lo lose your, your mind. Oh, the, you know, the brain on drugs kind of thing. And I talked about this a little bit with the, the, the fellow who came with you. You know, you, you and I met uh, recently at, at the Azora Festival. I'd seen you before, but we, we hadn't had a, ch a ch uh, chance to hang out. And uh, you had a, 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 I think he's one of your students or one of your, you know, people you're working yes. with, uh, uh, Madhu. Um, yeah, Mudu, 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 yeah. and uh, and he, I was asking him the same thing, and he he was he was talking about that that there, and 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 I and I was asking because I was curious that there is an element in African American modern culture, you know, from the '60s that is very resistant to psychedelics. I remember I was talking to my friend uh, Greg Tate, who's a great. Uh, culture critic, New Yorker, you know, plays jazz. No, yes. it's brilliant guy. Like, and he's been everywhere into cyberpunk, science fiction. You know, all the things that would indicate to me this is a this is a head. Like, this is somebody who's who's into that. And yet, 
he was very kind of resistant and he talked about it too. He's like, look, that's just, it's like, there's something, there's a different dynamic. And I guess that's what I'm asking about. There's a, there's a different dynamic of resistance inside the African-American community to psychedelics to some degree. And you were kind of alluding to that. And I just really love to hear you talk about what that is and then how, how, when you're doing your work and you're, you know, uh, developing student you know teacher student relationships you're drawing people into your way of practicing with these um sacred substances uh how you kind of even deal with that resistance or how you sort of see it you know uh what it's what its roots are well its roots are um basically that um we were um many of us uh our family units were taken by force to a place that they didn't want to go and then forced into a pseudo citizenship you uh, very resistant to medicine any type of influential uh, a type of compounds uh, that we would take coming from the uh, the other side of the coin in dealing with uh, the peoples of the americas you know we were uh, as the indigenous people misnomered and miscalled Indians who were uh, uh, given smallpox blankets and things like that. Um, in my lifetime, up in the 60s, when the psychedelics first came out, there were still people alive who were um, uh, in this Tuskegee experiment where, you know, they were purposely injected with syphilis and uh, as a study left that to fester um so there's a lot of mistrust uh, just like um you know you had women who were in the americas who were operated on where they did hysterectomies and things like that without anesthesia so um even though um white people don't know about these things or think about these things it's in the, the psyche of uh of africans living in america and i think it's part of the uh, epigenetic uh, movement uh, through not only the uh, through historical areas, but the epigenetics of just dealing with that type of stress that makes uh, people not really trustful in dealing with the type of things that go on. And then, of course, the way things were portrayed in the 1960s with the hippie movement. Uh, you know, it's just an, a, not a big trust there. But as I work over time, uh, people are seeing that, you know, I've been talking about this for decades. Uh, people are coming into the movement. I haven't went crazy yet. The people who are coming into the movement are stable family people. Uh, some who are uh, sharing it with their families. Uh, we see in uh, this community where people who, um, you know, even though the thing with uh, dealing with it as a, a clinical medicine or a psychiatric addendum, um, there are people who are just growing mushrooms themselves, giving it to the people who are in uh, different type of stresses in our environment. You know, there's a one, one uh, person that I know who was a crackhead. He was the guy who when thanksgiving came around you said you know uh, mikey can come over but somebody got to watch him because he's going to steal grandma's jewelry or 
uh, take some out of a purse or take some from somebody. Don't let him go here. Don't let him go there. I've seen this person change from the crackhead of the neighborhood who goes out in the morning driving his car, come back, even sold the car. Um, and actually one dose changed his uh, whole life around to become the pillar of his family now, um, the one that people come to for advice, uh, the one that people come to to um, uh, be able to get things done, uh, just in uh, seven grams of psilocybin mushrooms. And this goes on, on and on and on. And it's becoming exp exponential where people are, you know, yeah, you got some of those mushrooms, you know, my daughter's been depressed, you know, because a boyfriend left her and the other things and problems she has, she's depressed, she needs that. So they, you know, microdosing and all the things, but it's just not advertised and it's just not in the official lexicon of, you know, being administered by MAPS or uh, the Hefner Institute or something like that. Folks are just doing it, minding their own business, utilizing their own compounds that they grow in the comfort of their home in their bedroom or their cabinet or in the basement and administering it to folks who uh, who people feel the need it because the one thing about psilocybin as opposed to all of the other things it has that very high LD50 you ain't gonna kill yourself with it and if you're crazy when you take it that night it ain't gonna make you no more crazier by the morning so it can't hurt it can only help and you can't kill yourself with it it's not addicting so that's the way that people are starting to look at it like okay you can take as much as you want of this stuff but it ain't gonna kill you but it will be uh, psychologically challenging if you take uh, a certain dosage over yeah. a certain amount. So and, when, when you're working with people, let's say, who are, who are starting out, who are intrigued, and maybe it's the first, first time they're going to take a, a, a strong dose, whatever specific one that is, what, what do you, how do you counsel them? Like, um, and, and I guess I'm asking more even deeper, like, it, I feel like there's still something more to be said about how martial arts, how the attitude of a principled warrior who can work with uh, dangerous situations, but also has to maintain a certain decorum, a certain sense of value, a certain sense of confidence. It feels like there's something in that that is also going on in the way in which you approach these high dose um, experiences. So I'm really curious how you work with people who are you know, consciously interested in, you know, ramping up the dose and going farther and farther out of the familiar world? And what are the kinds of things that you, you talk to people about in terms of navigating, in terms of attitude, in terms of courage? Well, um, first and foremost, people who are starting out, I think was your first question, who are just, you know, just getting into this. We have a, a protocol that we suggest. We are not clinicians. I'm, I'm not a clinician. I'm not giving anybody any advice to do anything other than move forward in your life according to how you see it. And if you choose to take these, uh, take this compound or these compounds, um, we start out with five dry grams. That's everybody from eight to 80, um, uh, five dry grams with a, with a sitter. Now a sitter is not a guide. A sitter is not a person who's going to take some also with you. That person is just going to be there to, if you get confused or um, 
want to go out and tell the world that you're God or something like that, they'll tell you, no, you've taken mushrooms, just go back and sit down. Or somebody, if you need some music, to turn the music on or somebody to talk to. So they're not a God, they're not a guru, they're not a shaman, any of that stuff. Um, from five grams, they go up in two gram in increments, five grams, seven grams, and nine grams. After nine grams, if you feel confident in yourself, because that's really what taking the five grams in the beginning is for, is to gain confidence in yourself that you're not going to do anything silly or crazy. And seven grams to bolster that up, and then the nine, nine grams to give you a, um, you know, just give you a send-off. After the nine grams, you're, you can go by yourself without the sitter if you feel confident. You can keep the sitter for the rest of life, your life in taking these compounds if you like, but um, to really get into work, you have to do the work alone. Um, it's not a, uh, you know, and that doesn't mean you can't have group trips or uh, crips, trips where you have your partner and y'all go uh, one to the other into the multiverse and things like that. Now, moving from uh, beginner's doses into uh, higher doses, which which I don't, I don't really consider them, uh, I consider them heroic. Any dose of psilocybin that you take, it takes courage. So I've never belittled anybody by saying, oh, you're only taking five grams because that's a courageous act because you're going into the true unknown as opposed to, you know, I'm going to the, the Amazon or I'm going to, you know, uh, Haiti and deal with something, uh, voodoo or something like that. Um, the, the high dose, like I said, isn't for everyone. At one point, I did think it was for everyone, but there's so many people that don't have the sensibility um, that they can really deal with, with, with looking the mystery in the face in its in in its entirety. So, for those people who have the wherewithal and the courage and the 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 martial type of energy to go into extremely uh, novel places, extremely uh, into places that are so far flung, so far fetched, so weird, so off the beaten path, so crazy that um, they have to use uh, different techniques to hold on to themselves and to be able to hold on to the the information that they're gleaning from these different exotic places. Yeah, there's, a, there's I want to interrupt so just to say there's a there's a couple of, of things you've said about that those those deeper places that I wanted to bring up just to you know weave into the conversation because they really stuck with me. Uh, one is that you describe the experience um, using the the words of uh, Plotinus, the great Neoplatonist from antiquity where you talk about it as an experience of the alone with the alone yes into the alone yes and, and I, i'd love to hear you talk a little bit about embracing that kind of solitude because i think it's something that a lot of people are very resistant to even if in other ways they're up for courageous experiences they're you know whatever whether they're drinking ayahuasca or they're you know pushing the limits of what they expect about the world i still think there's a there's a, a certain resistance to really embracing that kind of solitude. So when you talk about the alone with the alone, what, what, what is that about? How, do, how does one 
find that in your, find that capacity in oneself? Well, I mean, if you take the dose, uh, it's thrust upon you. It's not the capacity. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you go and take, the, if you take the dose, it's going to plunge you into that. And it's about standing more and more of, of, of the raw mystery that's out there. It's about going deeper into what is available as far as consciousness is concerned. That's why I don't, I'm not a, uh, one of those who embraces the uh, destruction or the disillusion of the ego. I think that the ego is the only thing that you have and you hold on to it. Now we have the, the false ego, you know, uh, I'm big bad and, you know, I'm a millionaire and all those different type of things and I got all the women. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the pure consciousness of the self that you hold on to into uh, that you brought with you prior to the human experience, prior to the, the human mind. Uh, but that part of the consciousness that is forever and immortal and uh, doesn't dissolve when you go into places of uh, extreme, uh, uh, into, into areas of extreme blackness or darkness or extreme areas of how uh, reality is constructed inside of the uh, infraparticle range below the plank length into the area of the building of of reality you know so um, as, as far as being able to deal with this thing if you get a sufficient dose that's the, the that's the thing about uh, psychedelics if you give this, get a sufficient dose according to your own physiology, you know, it may be 20 for me, it may be 25 for you, it may be 18 for somebody else. But once you gain access to these areas, it's going to deliver and you have no, you know, you, you don't have anything that you can do about it. It's there and you have to deal with it. Yeah, you, you mentioned another thing just, just now where you talk about reaching those places, the infraparticle space where there's uh, a, a quality of darkness and this is something else you said once it really stick, stuck with me is it's not like you're at those extreme places you're discovering the light that's hidden in the darkness it's that your eyes are getting used to the darkness and when I hear that I, I hear not only a very uh, you know seasoned teaching on mysticism and its core relationship of light and darkness and the idea that, or the, 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 the message that it's not just about the light, folks. I think that's a really important message. But it also reminds me of like some of Sun Ra's poetry, where he's talking about, you know, Afro-Black. He's talking about space and the cosmic as darkness, as blackness, but not in the way that in you know the west you we polarize oh light good but you know darkness bad there's something else that's going on here there's some other possibility another way of being in and with darkness that you're you're opening up that i'd love to hear more about well in the in the um in the comedic tradition or the egyptian uh, tradition you have Ansar, which is also called Osiris, who is Lord of the perfect black, master of the darkness. 
And the thing is, is that uh, the possibilities of darkness are much more subtle and much more elegant and pristine than dealing with the light because darkness is pre-light. In other words, that darkness in the infraparticle realms, when you get down into the, the various levels of, of darkness, uh, under the Planck length, there's no light, not because there's an absence of light, is that light does not exist because photons do not exist. I think when, um, when Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita is speaking to Arjuna and uh, Arjuna says, well, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to kill my grandfather and my cousins and my teacher who taught me martial arts, Drona, and all these things. And he said that, uh, you know, you must be kidding. What you are, no fire can burn you. No wind can make you dry. No water can drown you. Because what he's talking about, he's talking about a darkness that's vastly past the darkness that is juxtaposed of light. He's saying that no fire can burn you because there's no molecules at those spaces that you're existing. There's no molecules to bump together to create friction to be able to make heat. There's no water molecules. There's no light molecules. I mean, there's no light photons. So if these things do not exist at the very minute magnitudes of smallness that we're talking about, then these things don't exist. They're not there. And Osiris or Ansar or Wasir, who is the lord of the underworld, that's what they're talking about. They're not talking about um, uh, the underworld, like, you know, under the, under the ground. They're talking about the underworld, a plenum of being, knowledge and information that is orders of magnitude below where these things are that exist as far as the atomic structure, as far as the collapse of the wave function from the wave into the particle, which creates the density in the macroverse. So what we're talking about is a darkness that's not the regular darkness that we're talking about. We're talking about the triple thick darkness where light and molecules and atoms and quarks and gluons and muons and all the stuff that they're going to pull out of the Large Hadron Collider, these things do not exist down there. This is the place where the tesseracts are. The tesseracts are triangular pyramids of which you build all of those things out of. And then the orders of magnitude below that, because there's an endless, it's an endless magnitude of going in the opposite direction. So far, that those things become so large and so vast and so massive and so monumental that, you know, uh, it there's no words to describe it. Yeah, you know, friend, one one of the things that I love about hearing you talk about this stuff is that it. It, it, it opens up something, and, and again, this does remind me of, uh, of McKenna, and I wanted to emphasize that when I talk about your, your raps in relationship to McKenna, it's not that I think you are a Johnny-come-lately. It's that, it's that I'm very relieved that you are maintaining a certain possibility, psychedelic possibility, at a time when the, 
the, the the tendency is to go in the opposite direction back to the human to the human personality to the world as we live it the problems that we have and those things that's all good but when i hear you talk about it i i get this sort of science fiction mysticism big cosmic and also as you put this infraparticle realm there's a strange mix of like far out science and science fiction and and like bit the the large scale imagination the imagination that's large enough to to hold gods like osiris or Doctor Strange, and and I know that you you that it's not you're, you that while you're definitely coming from a place where you respect tr- traditional mythologies, particularly uh, from Africa, but other places as well. You know, I know you talk a lot about the Bhagavad Gita. You're also a, a kind of a science fiction guy, or at least a comic book guy, and you've you've said some wonderful things about Doctor Strange and talking about how uh, Doctor Strange as we know him in the 70s, is very much coming out of a kind of entheogenic uh, perspective. And that's an important part about what's happening right now with our Hollywood superheroes and all this kind of stuff that's happening. There's something about that realm, too, that feeds into this large cosmovision that you're, that you're describing. Well, I'm a, a Marvel fan, and, you know, shout-out to Stan Lee uh, and his... Uh, transition to the next realm absolutely uh, you know uh, even though he <laughs> wasn't the genius of marvel he was the genius of marketing um actually it was uh you know uh the king of uh, of comics the the thing about it is is that we've progressed technologically to a place where the next level of the human and then the level outside of the human is right in front of our face as possible with artificial intelligence, the merging of consciousness with the computer cyborg, you know, cyborgs, things like this. It's right here in front of us. You know, we're we're in that, that time. And it's only been a minute since chipping Flint to quantum computers and artificial intelligence and things like this. And so going to the next step out of the human is what I'm most interested in. Because being human, you can't do anything. I want to go to New York. I can get on a plane. I got to worry about these folks crashing the plane. I got to worry about all these different things of time. If I want to go to New York, I just want to be in New York. If I want to go to California, I just want to be in California. But once I've breached the human to where that I could do those things, those things would only last a minute. I wouldn't have to be or go anywhere because I'd be in all places all the time and be able to experience all possibilities all the time at any time. So this is the type of thing that I'm talking about. I'm talking about being moving out of the human being into the next phase of what we're going to be the singularity. So um, these exotic beings that were captured in comic books, um, uh, Doctor Strange, the Eternals, Galactus, the Silver Surfer, you know, on and on and on, um, were gleaned from information that Jack Kirby, uh, that Jack Kirby had not only in his mind, but things that he had taken out of 
classified and declassified information, you know, just like the super soldier programs and things like that, um, that were going on in World War II with the Nazis and, uh, you know, uh, rocketry with Warner von Braun and these type of things move very quickly into where we are now. And now do we take the next step before we blow ourselves up or some climactic thing happens, you know, uh, we just had a, I, I have a, a asteroid watcher on my phone. We just had a, a close by asteroid pass, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you know, so if we don't blow ourselves up or the cosmic doesn't blow ourselves up, blow us up, we will, you know, we will progress in this line of, of thought and information. But the thing about it is, is that the multiverse is so vast and we're so uh, ingrained in the fabric of reality is that even if we were blown up, we'd still be here and we still, we still carry on from a different consciousness vantage point. You know, you you, t- you talk you use the phrase multiverse a lot, which I appreciate partly because it allows us to understand why people can have such varied experiences. Um, you know, of of whether in in some with psychedelics, some mystical, some you know through ritual. There's a lot of different things that arise. There's a lot of different entities. There's different characters of spaces. Um, do you do you think that the kinds of things that you perceive that you experience in the high dose states, are they the same as what somebody else taking a similar high dose with a similar kind of experience would have? Or at a certain point in terms of the multiverse, do we all sort of get our own versions? Or is there some ultimately pluralistic reality that we're just tuning into certain uh, dimensions of? Does that make sense? Well, well, I mean, there are places that uh, cross over that people can experience that are, that would be uh, the same or similar places, like going to California. You know, uh, you go to California, I go to California. We're both in California, but you're, you know, you're in Northern California in Frisco, and I'm in Southern California in San Diego, still California. Um, now, does that mean that we can both meet up in San Francisco? Yes. But the thing is, is that ultimately at the high doses, when you go out, it's that journey of the alone into the alone, because uh, when it comes down to it, it's only you out there. And you think that that by doing that kind of work, it helps get us not even just ready, but it actually helps uh, make us be or draw us into being the transhuman minds or, or spirits that are going to be able to handle the transformation that's already, you know, upon us in terms of technology and and uh, artificial intelligence and things like that. Well, I think it's one of the ways to uh, move forward from an organic space, and that organic is just another way to say a different form, a different way of approaching it, because. In reality, it's all artificial. It's all computer generated. It's all algorithms. It's all um, a uh, you know a generated reality, and uh, even the things that we say are natural. It's all all of that stuff is computer generated. 
We, have, we got about 10 minutes here uh, left. And, and one thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, it's just a, a slight change of pace, is, the, is that, you, you know, you're, you're in Detroit and you have a, a psychedelic conference that's met there a, a, a couple of years now. I haven't been able to go. I've wanted to, but, you know, things come up. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, how that started and, and how it's kind of uh, how it works in the community, how, what, how people are reacting to it? Well, uh, the Detroit Psychedelic Conference, uh, this, is a, this was our third conference this year, 2018, and the attendance was really up and we're looking forward to more participation in 2020 when it comes up. Um, it was in lieu of what we talked about earlier, um, that the Africans living in America, we needed our own conference as opposed to begging to be in other folks' conferences. Because when you look at the lineup of, you know, uh, the different conferences that are out here, the major ones, you see uh, basically old white men, middle-aged white men, young white men, and a splattering of a few women, and uh, maybe sometime myself. Um, so I can see them in the midst of picking the lineup saying, okay, who do we got? We want to come. Um, well, we'll bring in this person, that person, this person is the keynote. Um, we'll have a couple of the women, uh, you know, and then, you know, we need a black person. So, you know, we'll bring in Kalindi. Um, so that's basically what the conference came out of, that we needed our own conference. And that's what we did. We put it together. So, um, you know, because even when uh, folks are, are put in, you get still marginalized. Um, I spoke in Australia and, uh, you know, they put you on at eight o'clock in the morning on Sunday after the all night doof party, which was, which is still going on at eight o'clock in the morning, the doof, 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 you know, and you're trying to talk in the midst of that rather than in the evening where you can present your PowerPoint program, you can, uh, talk about what you're doing and things like that. They just say, well, you know, it's, well, we'll put him in the morning because that's an empty slot. So that type of thing. So we have our own conference. And if we don't get invited to the other conferences, that's fine. Um, if we do, that's fine, too. But it has to be stepped up to where it's a presence in the conference that it's something that uh, people want to hear. And then you can get, you know, you can get dealing with um, how, how things are treated. I was um, at... Uh, breaking convention and as far as the Vimeo my Vimeo recording was listened to on Vimeo by more people than anybody that had ever been on Vimeo for breaking convention um, but still you know it was a portion that you know you're regulated to and breaking convention and it's fine. They're progressive. I like breaking convention. I've spoken at each and every one of the breaking conventions that has been held. Um, so they're pioneering in this, but still, there's still some steps that you have to go um, because basically it's a uh, academic PhD, psychiatrist, psychologist, good old boys network that runs, runs the show. So we have our own conference. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's, I know one thing you were you, you you've talked about before is how what we need uh, going going ahead is that we we need more Doctor Strangers, 
more sorcerers, you know, yes. more things that are outside of what is really an increasingly narrow and professionalized zone of what can, who can speak, what their credentials are, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I started going to psychedelic conferences uh, almost 20 years ago. Yeah, actually 20 years ago. Uh, and they were, they were different back then. There were, there were doctors, there were researchers, but a lot of the people were there were freelancers and wizards yeah. and, and, yeah. and wild people. So it's nice to, uh, you know, I think it's great that you, that you, you step forward uh, and did something in Detroit. And I'm curious how the community, the broader community, I mean, there's going to be some people who are like, this is great. This is just what I've been looking for. And they're going, they're enthusiastic, they're giving talks. But then there's a, you know, that's taking place in a, in a broader context. How do other people see it? Is it, is it still seen as kind of crazy stuff? Is there starting to, sh- is there starting to be a general shift as you're seeing in, in other uh, sectors of American society where people are going, hey, maybe there is something to this psychedelic stuff. Is that happening in Detroit? Well, yes, Detroit has a, uh, a broad psychedelic history going back to Plum Street in the city of Detroit, where that's where you got your acid and mushrooms and all the different things that were happening back in the late 60s and things like that. Um, so it's, it's opening up. I mean, Michigan became one of the progressives. They voted in the recreational uh, cannabis, you know, which they call marijuana as cannabis. Um, but uh, they voted it in. Now, regardless of what they do and how they put it together and all that kind of stuff, the people spoke that this is something that they wanted. Because we've come to the generation of people who smoke, <laughs> who smoke cannabis, <laughs> who smoke cannabis, not the people who were the generation prior, or even the generation prior to that. We're getting to the point where the psychedelic people are getting, uh, are in voting age and are in Congress, Congress and House of Representatives and senators and governors and things like that. You know, of course we had, you know the folks who didn't inhale and all that kind of stuff, but it's coming to that generation of the folks who did inhale. And that's going to move into psychedelics very quickly. Um, Psilocybin, uh, you know, MDMA and others uh, will be moving into the mainstream very, very quickly. Well, you you mentioned earlier about the popularity of your, of your video. I watched that video too, like, like so many people, and I do know that, you know, you, you've got a lot of, of fans out there, people at Azora, they want you back, breaking convention, da-da-da. What do you think it is that is, attracts people? Like, is it, uh, what, what, what are you providing that, that they're not hearing from other places? What do you think that, is? I mean, you have a personal kind of energy about you, which people like. But, but in terms of your message and what you're talking about, what do you think it, it, it is that, that you're, you're bringing? I think it's the sensibility of the explorer as opposed to uh, I'm sick and I need some help and maybe this medicine will help me get over my earthly human problems into, you know, uh, out there to go where no one has gone before, to see things that no one has seen, to be able to experience that which no one else that ever existed experienced and that's really what it is it's the the you know in this in this place and time we have very little to be able to uh, be a magellan or be someone who uh, abubakar the second who took his took 700 ships and moved out into the ocean 
and cross the Atlantic into uh, Central America. We don't have that anymore. I mean, you may be a spelunker and there's a cave that has never been explored, or you may be uh, somebody who is climbing a certain mountain and things like that. But to be able to really go into the unknown, that's something that is very, very rare. But it's been made available to anybody who has the wherewithal to go on YouTube and learn how to grow mushrooms you know, because mushrooms are, once the learning curve is, is breached, you can grow your own mushroom from one spore print for the rest of your life and pass that same mushroom on to your grandchildren and great-grandchildren and give them the ability to explore. Not that I think that the grandchildren and great-grandchildren will even be here to take the mushroom because I think that we'll be out of the human uh, so very, very quickly that the dynamics of the world that we think are going to be, I was watching a program about uh, what will happen in 2050. In 2050, they were looking at the same thing that they're talking about now, except we'll have faster trains and a faster car, maybe the car will fly, and we'll have food that is without bacteria and those type of things. But that's not what 2050 is. If we listen to Ray Kurzweil, who's been right up to this point, within 10 years, we will have a sentient AI and that AI will change everything. But what really people don't really understand is that the AI is already sentient, living in the blockchain on, on, the, uh, on the internet. It's already here. The singularity has already been done. But oh. Ray Kurzweil is so close to it, he can't see it. Yeah. Jordy, 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 uh, Jordy Rose and all these different type of people. All right. Well, with the, with that note of uh, exploration, I think we got we got ended here. The clock is ticking. And uh, Kalindi, thanks so much for uh, joining me on Expanding Mind. Thank you for inviting me. Um, greetings to your audience, and uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. Absolutely, I will. We definitely will. All right, folks. Till next week. Keep your minds open. Mm-hmm.